I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome once again to Football Belongs. I'm Richard Bayless. Just a reminder, the podcast and chapter are different to each other. So we recommend you listen and read to get the full experience in whichever order suits you. For now, though, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks, Rich. Welcome to the Getting Equal podcast in the Football Belongs series, which centres on a match that was due to take place in September 2015 between women's soccer giants USA and the Matildas. The Matildas, however, took one colossal stand. The game never proceeded. The panel is esteemed Professional Footballers Australia CEO and Matilda's greatest ever goal scorer until very recently. Still sitting in a very respectable third, Kate Gill. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Another former Matilda who boasts a formidable CV, too long to uh, outline, but she's a lawyer strategist and board member of the Australian Grand Prix, Grand Prix Corporation. She's also a Change Our Game ambassador for the Victorian government, Tal Carp. Hey, David. How you doing? Going well. Great to have you on. And esteemed writer and academic who co-authored the book Never Say Die, the 100-year overnight success of Australian women's football, Fiona Crawford. Hello to you. Hello. And series author and inspiration, John Didlitzer, who helped champion a host of significant women's policies at PFA alongside Kate Gill, including the landmark Matilda's Socceroos Equal Pay Deal in 2019. You all know his CV from previous episodes. G'day to you, JD. Nice to be here, David. And joining us for the first part of this podcast is one of the Matildas who bravely took a stand back at Hyde Park in 2015. Matildas great with 80-plus caps and a Julie uh, Julie Dolan medalist, Tamika Yallop. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Now, Tamika, we'll come to you in a moment, but John, let's set the scene with you as we always do. This is one of two games in the series that never went ahead, along with the Socceroos' cancelled 1960 tour of Southeast Asia, which cost... John Moriarty, the chance to become the first Indigenous Socceroo. Now, we covered that in the First Nations People uh, podcast. USA versus Australia, Detroit, Michigan, 17 September 2015. It was scheduled. Tickets were sold. The Matildas stayed put. What's the significance of this event, this Matildas stand? Yeah, look, I think in the con- in a footballing context, it's incredibly brave. Uh, this was the biggest stage one could perceive the Matildas ever playing on. Ranked in the world's top 10, this year the Matildas became the first Australian team to win a knockout stage at the World Cup. Should be cleared by Australia, and there it is! The Matildas become Australia's most successful senior team at a World Cup. Now the Matildas are also the first national team in history to go on strike. So the gravity of the step cannot be understated. Uh, More broadly, I think it reflected... Um, what I found in my research for this area is that the trajectory or the, the life, life of the Matildas as, a, as an entity reflects to a large degree the journey of 
um, of feminism, of seeking equality since um, Australia was settled by the British, you know, back in the, the late 1700s. Um, from the outset, uh, women were perceived as outsiders. You know, the first tranche of people who arrived in the late 1700s were men. Um, it wasn't until 40 or 50 years later we proactively started introducing women, introducing women to Australia. So they're outnumbered five to one at that point. Um, and since that time, it's been a struggle for women to get the, the footing that they needed within Australia. And um, at different times, women have had to take a stand in order to make progress. And I felt the Matilda stand in 2015 spoke to that. We're not asking for millions of dollars. We're asking for minimum wage to sustain our lives off the pitch, to do well on it. It's as simple as that. Before we, we get on to Tamika to, to outline that, the story that really resonated with me deeply um, and it is aligned closely to this Matilda story, happened in the early 1920s with an actress called Emily Pellini, who was effectively working in the theatre, a gifted theatre actress, and was supporting her deadbeat husband and her young daughter um, because her husband conveniently refused to grant her a divorce. Uh, as a consequence of that, she uh, wasn't allowed to leave for the US um, to pursue her acting career unless she decided to give up custody of her daughter. And she had to make a choice, go to the US by myself and pursue my dream or stay in Australia, let go of my dream to ensure I could see my daughter. She decided to go to the US so that she could A, make money for her family, but B, fulfill her own destiny as an actress. And she died three or four years later, effectively of, of alcohol abuse, I think. So that's the burden that women have carried for a long time. And that burden shifted to the Matildas in 2015. Would they acquiesce to the challenging existence they were forced to undergo, which was you know, effectively living three different lives of footballer, of worker, of student, of sometimes parent um, or, or caregiver, or would they take a stand and change the paradigm in which women operated in sport? And, you know, it was a powerful step that the players took in 2015. Tamika Yallop, you were one of those players. You were Tamika Butt at the time. Uh, but you, like many of your teammates, you're in your prime. You'd won the Dolan medal a year earlier. You'd just played in the FIFA World Cup in Canada. This was the chance to take on the world champions, Olympic champions. It was a big call. Take us back to the events leading up to that brave stand you and your teammates took. Yeah, I think it was definitely a big call. I mean, um, for myself, I'd never played um, America, you know, um, on home, their home soil before. So um, to me, that was an exciting match um, had it been played. And, and that was a small sacrifice for me to make, um, you know, not to, to live out that. But um, at the same time, it was an even bigger sacrifice for, for the older players in the group and um, for the ones that were really trying to, um, sort of paved that pathway for players like myself to be able to continue playing. So um, it was, I think it was a sacrifice, a different kind of sacrifice for each player in the team. And um, the fact that we did it collectively was, had so much power to it. Kate Gill, how do you reflect on that moment in time? Yeah, um, look, when you think about it, it was a really bold stance that the team took. There was um, a lot of dynamics at play, not to mention... Um, who they were playing against, obviously the US, such a powerhouse, but for the players to be able to recognise that they needed to be respected and valued and that this decision was going to have profound ramifications both in changing the context and the dynamic that they operate in, but also for them to find their voice and to back their solidarity and their unity 
to be able to stick together and to do something for a, for a higher purpose and a broader outcome. Tal Carper, you were well and truly retired by this stage, although I might add you did retire very young to pursue your career in law. Uh, what are your recollections? Look, you've kind of heard it here already. Tamika said how much this game meant to her. You heard from JD how brave the stance was, from Katie how bold it was, and it was every bit all of those words. You know, they were turning down an enormous game, a game that I had heard sold out. 60,000 people, I think, were, were prepared and ready to watch this game. It was in the lead up to the 2016 Olympic Games. It wasn't a game to forego lightly. So it was a big step. It was a bold step. And it involved sac- sacrifice, as you heard from Tamika. For me, watching on with admiration, I've got to say, not just for the players, but also for the PFA who stood by the players' side, it also gave me pause to reflect on, I guess, how far we've come And that is, you know, just over a decade prior to that, we were just so busy finding our place on the pitch, trying to be respected for our talent on the field, that conversations about pay weren't even in our contemplation at that stage. So it really gave me a chance to see the incremental change over time, which will lead me to uh, have a a respectful uh, conversation with JD about some of his earlier comments at a later opportune time, David. You just let us know, Tal. No worries. Any time, David. Now, uh, Fiona, what were your thoughts at the time? I had a weirdly insider-outsider perspective. So I I used to look after the social media for the team, so I had travelled with the team and was aware of what it was like to be on tour with the team. Um, And then I was also looking at it from a media perspective because obviously my background is in media and so I was watching the headlines and was conscious of the complexity of the issue and looking at how that might translate to uh, sort of headlines or how it was going to be received by the general public. So, yeah, I had a really – I was fascinated but also quite scared for the players and I was so relieved when it turned out incredibly well for them. Tamika, did you have a sense of occasion at the time? Did you have a sense of how, how significant this moment and this stand would be? Um, I think at the time I was, um, I guess I wasn't quite aware of the of the full um, potential of the outcome of this, and and but I could really see from the senior players that were in the team that this was really really important for them, and I do put my hands out to them, put and and thank them for it because what I didn't see at the time is that they weren't doing it for themselves; they were doing it for for people like myself and younger players coming through. So. At the time, I don't think I had a full perspective on what was going on, but um, I could tell that it was something that was really, really important and um, something that would definitely help the game in the future. Um, so, yeah, as I said, put my hands down for that. And just reflecting on on your story and, and I guess providing a bit of context for what that moment meant for you and how far women's football and, and women's sport has come, how do you reflect on your personal journey? Yellow. With the turn and the shot from Yallop. How about that from Tamika Yallop? Off the woodwork and in. Yeah, I think I'm so grateful for um, the support of the whole team and, and from the PFA and, and everyone that was kind of there and around um, that point in time. I think it really did um, propel women's women's football in Australia. And I think I was at that stage um, as well. You know, I was studying, I was um, working part-time and, and I was living at home and, and it was kind of that point in time where I was, how long do I pursue this or, or when do I get on with my life? And 
um, if it wasn't for, for that day and, and that strike, that I don't think I would have really been able to continue as long as I have been. And that's the thing, when we look at the, the wages back then, I think Kate and John would probably know them off the top of their head, but pretty paltry sums when, when we look at them. Uh, FFA uh, proposing at the time a, a retainer for, for 20 players at $23,000 per annum. Obviously, the PFA were pushing for something um, slightly higher. Um, casting forward... To make aware, I mean, if we look at the 2023 World Cup and and where women's football is going, what are your views on the on the future? Yeah, I think we've we've obviously come leaps and bounds from from that day, and um, credit to everyone that's that's stuck with it and really been pushing for for the women's game because um, it is growing, and and 2023 is a massive massive opportunity for us to to really leave a legacy and and continue with that pathway for youth players coming through and and really just a professionalism um, of the game and and the flow and effect that that has with women's sport in general in Australia. And just finally from you, a message for young female footballers, sports people, I guess we'll focus on football, but uh, who potentially aspire to have professional careers. What, What is your message to them? Obviously, the main thing is, is to enjoy your football, but I think education is pretty big and and to really get where you want to go, I think you need to be educated in, in your surroundings around you and, and how you can positively influence that and, and help others in, in um, that pursuit of your own goal as well. I think that would be my message. All right, Tamika, we'll let you go, but we really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the Optus Football Belongs podcast. No worries, guys. Thanks for having me. See you later. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Just listening to Tamika there, any any views when uh, off the back of her comments? I love when she said, you know, we really need to think about how we can positively influence the game and contribute to the game. So we've got what is really a generation of athletes who are not just focused on themselves individually but are starting with the PFA support as well to think about, well, what can the future of the game look like? She mentioned the 2023 World Cup and what an opportunity it will be if we can get behind them and create the sort of legacy that it has the potential to provide. Kate, in 2015 there was no AFLW and women's sport in Australia looked very different. Only six years ago, five and a half years ago, effectively. How important was their stand in a broader context and what did this do in a women's sporting context? Yeah, the um, the strike itself kind of served on reflection as a, a watershed moment for women's sport. I think it was around the value and of what a female product can look like. Um, many of the bigger codes obviously saw that there was a place for having a female team and a female product. So for us, we were kind of the catalyst in that to be able to have football stand out as the, the North Star. Um, if I reflect on it now and the position that we're, we're in at the moment, I feel like maybe we rested on our laurels a bit too long. We, um, we have made significant strides, but when you look at the rest of the codes, they seem to be catching up, if not 
overtaking. I think the one thing that football does have from the other Australian codes that is is the the global capacity to be able to to play on um on the world stage. So yeah, while it it kind of it served a, a greater purpose, I think now um probably at a point of reflection that we um we probably should have done more to be honest. And on that global theme, I mean this resonated globally. The the US team who they played against, and, and John, you touch on this in uh, in the chapter, there was tens of thousands of signatures to this petition, including some of the high-profile uh, US national team players such as Carly Lloyd. This reverberated around the world. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, I think that was, was great that also kind of um, solidified the, the players' decision to actually make that stand when they were supported by their female counterparts in the in the American team as well. I mean, it wasn't wasn't just Carly Lloyd. It was the likes of Hope Solo as well that were the ones that were supporting the decision that the team made. Can I ask a question, Katie? Because what I'm interested in, and, and Fiona, I'd really like your reflections on this given your background in the media, but the change that happened with the strike. I mean, we already in the broader narrative were talking about the value of women in sport, but we hadn't yet got across the bit about this being work, that women were playing sport, but this was actually something that they should be paid for. We had always just been so proud to wear the green and gold and just been thankful, I think, to be, you know, have our expenses covered when we travelled on the cheap and stayed in crap hotels, unlike the Socceroos. It wasn't a narrative that we were prepared for. In fact, feminism was a bit of a dirty word and talking about equal pay was a bit of a dirty word. So for me, the change of the narrative was just so striking. I'd love your reflections and also Fiona's from, uh, you know, your media expertise, Fiona. Katie, do you want to go first? <laughs> sure. <laughs> no problem at all. No, I, I agree with you, Tal. It's a, it's a fantastic point that the narrative did change and it was about legitimising as a, as, a, as a workplace, as a profession, as a career. And we'd, we'd never really had that conversation. As you said, there's such a degree of gratitude that you kind of inherit when you put on that shirt. It should you be, should be grateful for the economy seat. You should be grateful for the, you know, the second class pitch that you're playing on, the facilities that you're staying in because you're representing your country and that should be rewarding itself. But to actually turn that conversation around and say, no, this, this needs to be respected. It needs to be valued. It needs to be legitimised. This is a profession. This is a workplace. So let's treat it as one. Yeah. And it's still a jarring narrative really for a lot of people who are so socialised in the way that we have been. Fiona, your reflections. I'm just taking yeah. over, David. hope you don't mind. Yeah, go for it, Tell. <laughs> It's funny you say that because it's the thing that keeps me awake at night because I think as women we internalise a lot of this kind of cultural um, niceness and we're taught not to rock the boat and to be grateful, as you were saying, Katie. And I feel like that is in not just women's football but it's across the board and, and it's something that's really difficult to overcome. I was actually reading Megan Rapinoe's book just recently and she talked a lot about how it's okay for men to directly ask for a pay rise, but women actually get a better result if they've got an intermediary because for us to ask directly is actually still quite culturally uh, taboo. And I guess, yeah, I've been looking at it from the perspective of, well, we're coming up to, I guess, the 100-year anniversary so since women uh, have started playing football in Australia. And in that time, it has been underfunded, overlooked. Um, it's been an afterthought. It's never been taken seriously as a job. So I was actually talking to David, you know, prior to the podcast and saying, I realised only yesterday that as recently as 2014, we had Katrina Gori being named the best footballer um, in Asia, obviously as a woman. Uh, but she 
still couldn't make a full-time salary out of her job. So she flew back from the AFC awards ceremony where she was named the best female footballer. And then she went straight back to work at a part-time cafe job and was taking, you know, media calls about the, the award at the back of the cafe because she's, the pay was still at that stage so poor. So that was obviously right just before the, the strike. Uh, but it, yeah, it's, I think it really speaks to the fact that it's never been treated as a job and it wasn't probably until you achieved pay parity in 2019 that we actually started to say, hey, you can make a career out of this. There is a pathway. And from a, to carry on that historical context, Fiona, obviously you've, you've written the book which, uh, which really delves into, uh, into that expertly. Um, draw, what, what, what other parallels can you draw with this strike or um, stand taken by the Matildas in 2015? I feel like it has been coming for a long time. So Di Aligic, who is obviously one of our um, most, one of the most incredible former Matildas, she, there was a quote that I have from her where she basically said, we used to always joke that we chose to represent our country instead of being financial. And she was, for her, she was identifying even back then when she was playing in, what was it, the 90s, the 2000s, um, she was identifying that it was an either or equation. And so it's, I feel like it's the Dialogiches, it's the Cheryl Salisbury's who were literally working as cleaners, who were having to collect the doll, who were having to work on chicken processing lines. They were the players who, they knew that that couldn't continue and that something had to change. And I feel like they laid those foundations for your Tamika Yallops and and the current generations of players to benefit from it, but also to make that stand. Because I think they came off the back of, well, I guess 20, 2007 and 2011, and they were starting to get some better results and they were starting to feel a little bit more confident. And I don't know, they, I think there's a lot at play, but they, they definitely laid the foundations for the, for the current generation to make that stand, I think. Yeah, I think one, one of the important things that, Fiona mentioned there is that women's football is coming up to its centenary from the first time women's football was played. And there's a quote from a writer and academic, Marilyn Lake, where she says, until the 1970s, the writing of Australian history was marked by the absence of women. And the same statement could apply to women's football, is that whilst it started playing at the turn of the century, the first Matilda's International was not until the late 1970s, 1978, I think, was the first game. So there's this incredible parallel between the journey of women in Australia and the journey of women's football and in particular the Matildas. So that's something that really resonated with me. And again, to anchor it back to the ethos behind this series, it's about how football explains Australia in so many different ways. You know, and I think the Matildas is such a powerful emblem for what women can achieve in so many different forms if they're given an opportunity to do so. While I agree in part, JD, there is a nuance I think we need to consider there. And that is, yes, football, I mean, it's a microcosm of broader society. It reflects the dialogues that are playing out. But one of the things that has held football back is that there is this assumption that the rules that apply in football are somehow different to the rest of society. So the gains that are made maybe off the pitch with women entering the workforce in certain ways, I don't think that they were obtained in football sometimes soon enough. And maybe if we flip that as well, sometimes we can actually use the platform of sport, as the Matildas did with that very strike, to send a message and to say something broader about what should 
affect women in broader society. So in a sense, what happens on the football field doesn't stay there, but in fact affects women at home, you know, in playgrounds, at work, etc. Yeah. And the parallels that I would draw to that is it's when women took a really powerful stand, is that when there was a shift in what their rights and entitlements would otherwise be. So we saw that with the Matildas and a couple of examples I, I touched on was Zelda Deprano, who took a stand in the late 60s when she changed herself to the CBA, got the Commonwealth Bank to get equal pay for public service workers in the 1960s when women chained themselves to pubs in Brisbane because they weren't allowed to be served. It was always drawing attention to these injustices and the subsequent media attention that actually drove outcomes. Powerful stands are so important and we should so celebrate them and they are really visible. But I I wonder sometimes if we're forgetting all of the great work along the way and if we, I mean, we were just talking before we started this about the debates that are happening in political circles at the moment where young women against all of the powers that be have to take a stand against all of that to be able to say the system should change. And and I think we also need to reflect on the other system changes. And you may have used the word acquiesce. I think there's subtle changes that happen over time that are also really important that then allow us, as Fiona said, to create the setting after the Dialogiches and the Cheryls, who I was fortunate enough to play with, to create the platform where we can take that next step. So um, I guess I guess in my mind, there are some other nuances that we need to take into account. Let's bring it back to football. We've got two former Matildas in the studio here. Now, wanted to get uh, go back to your careers. We've touched on what it was like or what it was like for you uh, and the challenges that you clearly faced. Um, just first of all, what I just want to get a line from each of you. What was Kate like as a teammate and vice versa? Katie Gill remains as she was as a player, incredibly humble, hates the attention, which is why while I'm looking at her right now, she's going bright. She's not even looking at me. <laughs> she is confirmed. <laughs> a fabulous hard worker and um, definitely someone that people regardless, and I and I was older than her and came before her, but you could still look up to, to Katie Gill. So quite a captain for our country. And by the way, when I say she's number three on the all-time uh, goal scoring list, Sam Kerr, Lisa Devanna ahead of her, two of the greats as well. So nothing to be ashamed of. Kate, your turn to return, return serve. Oh, <laughs> I'm still blushing at the moment. I'm just trying to get past Tell's comments. No, um, for me, when I was young and entering the fray that was the Matildas, I was fortunate to cross paths with Tao. So I got firsthand experience of just how hard you need to work and how dedicated you need to be to be able to be a Matilda and to hold your position in the team. I mean, your work ethic was incredible. Someone that I looked up to and just admired the sheer determination and will to succeed. And Fiona, having covered these two extensively, uh, any insights that you can provide? Yeah, oh, I have to admit, I, it's quite weird to be sitting in a in a podcast with people I've been looking up to for so many years. So, uh, yeah, I definitely feel like I'm hoping to hold up my end of the bargain. But, no, they've been um, incredible. And I think I remember seeing Katie at just a really tricky time as well. She'd just been named the best player in Asia and then also did her ACL and, had, and turned up to the 2011 Women's World Cup to still support the team. And I think that was a real show of courage. So, yeah. Take us back to where and when it all started for the two of you um, in terms of the the, the football career. 
Um, I was relatively young. I mean, I got exposed to football through my grandfather, English descent, mad Evertonian. So spent many a day watching the game with him and, and started local junior club in Newcastle at the age of four and just completely fell madly in love with the game. Um, I just remember saying to my mum, I want to play football. And that was it. A pair of boots on down the local park. And I'm um, probably similar to Tao. My whole junior career was spent playing with boys. There was no female pathway. There was no female team. So you were growing up playing alongside boys. So while it probably had benefit in terms of your skill and the way that you um, read the game and the speed that the game was played, at, there were also major challenges would you reflect on now, the fact that there were no change rooms for you to get changed. You know, I remember on numerous occasions I'd put my team shirt over my normal shirt and then try and take my shirt off under my shirt because I'm standing outside the boys' change room because I'm the only female that's in that team. So huge changes and challenges to get through. But, yeah, that's where my love of the game came from. Tal? JD mentioned the lack of visibility of the game forever and that's absolutely my reflection of it. I didn't see women play, didn't see them on TV. My first, I guess, exposure to the game was watching the Men's World Cup on TV And I'm told, and it's very embarrassing, that I got very excited and told my family from that point in time that I wanted to play in the World Cup, although I didn't really know that that was just men watching, that I was watching on the TV. Anyway, my brother played. I wasn't allowed to play. I was a very jealous young person. um, And so I just kept asking until I was allowed to play. And like Katie, I spent my whole youth uh, playing with boys and we had a bit of a chat earlier and you really liked the reflection that I spent a decade in boys' toilets because that's really what it was. <laughs> yes, there weren't change rooms. Therefore, you had to park yourself in those men's toilets if you were going to be part of the team. And I actually find that a, a nice analogy because, you know, I was never comfortable in those change rooms. I had to be in those change rooms if I wanted to be part of the team because that's where the band happened. That's where the team talks happened. But it wasn't a place that I felt comfortable. And I, and I think... If you are going to be at your best, you need to feel like you belong. So sometimes that stench of those urinals, it comes back to me when I'm at a boardroom table and I feel like I don't belong. And my point here, everyone, keep with me, stay with me, is that it can't just be about that individual that's trying to burst into a bubble, but we actually need to change the system so that we feel like we're comfortable and we belong in the spaces that we play. So, yeah, for me, and I mentioned this at the beginning, we weren't allowed to play. There weren't women. So just being able to play was the change that we wanted to make. And here's here's quite a disturbing realisation I had recently, which I think goes back to a point that you were making, Fiona, that I think we can pick back up on. And that's the idea of being socialised and the unconscious bias that might permeate all of us. And that is, you know, it was hard being the only girl, but at the same time, I loved it. I didn't want other girls in the team. I thought if other girls were going to be in the team, they had to fight like me, they had to be like me, And, you know, they had to deserve it like me. So in other words, I was lifting the ladder for the kids behind me. I was seven, so that doesn't make me particularly bad. But the point (laughs) is we're socialised in our system. We, We have grown up in a system that teaches us that boys play football and that girls don't. And so for me, um, the journey of women in football in a way is like the journey elsewhere of us becoming more aware of what is not okay over time. And so what I love about this conversation is that the things that in the past were just what they were, we're now starting to try and uncover them and unravel them and talk about why they're not okay anymore. And that, for me, is progress. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. If I could um, sort of personalise this a little bit, like men tend to do. (laughs) Um, Look, my, my greatest role models 
yeah, it's my sister doesn't listen to my podcast, so maybe she will because my mum's my biggest fan, so she'll be listening to this for sure. So she might even influence my sister to actually listen to some of my soccer stuff because my sister loathes soccer. Um, she loathes it because it made her a second class citizen in our family. I remember her having to play a couple of times to fill in when we were short of players and it was a great laugh and we all had fun, but then it was right back to the car and listened to music once that had finished. And there was no thought at the time to say, okay, Trish, she's quite athletic. She loves being around people. She's sociable. Let's set up a women's team. That wasn't discussed. And this is from a family. And my mum was secretary of the club at the time and the biggest, David DeVood, which can attest to this, the biggest football fan you will ever meet. Unbelievable. Shout out to Mary. Um, Loves the game, loves everything about it, and inspired my love of the game more than anyone. So you've got these powerful women in your life. You, you don't even think. There's an invisibility about setting up the same opportunity for, in this case, my sister. And I had this um, epiphany again when I first started working with Kate and got to know Kate well, is here's somebody who has given up more for football than what anyone can contemplate. You know, she, she, in essence, gave up her entire adulthood tracing this dream to be Australia's best female footballer. Yeah, give up um, a job, give up a whole range of different things that other people don't have to, and certainly men pursuing their football career don't. And when you speak to someone like Kate, when you understand her story, when you see the passion and love she has for the game, it can only help inspire people. And if the game doesn't embrace that, they're just missing out on so much. So I think we're at a point now where we're starting to appreciate that. We're starting to recognize that. I think 2023 gives us a great opportunity to properly celebrate that and embed it in how we uh, structure sport. But, you know, it's incredible if everybody reflects on their footballing journey, how how critical, you know, particularly the women in their life have been to that. And, you know, I'll thank you, Kate, publicly for all the inspiration you've given me. Aww. Because, you know, it's just... It, it's a, such a, a beautiful story of someone who just loves the game unconditionally and, and sacrifices so much for it. Kate, you're so modest. I know you're not going to want to say anything, but you have to follow up on what JD said and, and to touch on those sacrifices. Yeah, it's it's funny when you reflect on it because I don't consider it a sacrifice. It's something I loved and I didn't know any different. Um, so for me, it, it wasn't sacrificial in any way. But um, when you do reflect on it, and I think as you get a little older and kind of where your career trajectory ends up. And I think the saddest thing about it for me is that football doesn't give you a fairy tale ending. You don't have control over that. So to be able to kind of deal with the professional side of the game, move on from the game. But for me, I think I've made more of an impact off the field than I have on it. Like the role that I'm in at the moment and the work that I get to do through the Professional Footballers Australia has meant the world to me to be able to share my experiences or the uncomfortableness that I had as a player and be able to put a framework together or a pathway or build, you know, a strategy that can then transport the game forward, move the game forward and not just on the pitch but off the pitch as well in terms of the way that we're going to govern the sport, view the sport, embrace the female perspective, allow females to be leaders, allow them to make decisions. As Tal touched on, there's so many nuances to the structural changes that need to be made and you're correct in saying that we've got a long way to go there. It's still very challenging for a female to lead from an administrative standpoint. There's so many burdens along the way. You know, you're always reflecting on if I make this decision, well, how's that going to end for me? For men, it just seems like they get a chance. They get another chance, you know. For women, it's like unless you do it right and you do it their way, then good luck to you. But as I said, to be able to, to move out of football and stay in football and then 
also, you know, to work alongside JD, so I'll make him blush now. Like, <laughs> it's it's seeing the people that are so passionate about the game but then want to influence the game and change the game and people that you can, you know, have those deep conversations with and understand it and want to do something about it and that support and drive your aspiration and your thinking. Like, the support that you get from that and to be able to embrace that, it's, yeah, I, I can't thank him enough for the work that he's done because I've been there alongside him doing it with him. So it's just been, it's been fantastic to be part of all of that. It's a bit of a JD and KT like yeah, yes. How are you going over there, Fiona? <laughs> Good. Well, if I could actually add to that, though, um, because I think when it, particularly when you're talking about pay parity and all the challenges that women face uh, when it comes to football, I guess for me it's that it's not that I don't love men's football because I absolutely do and I'll happily watch it any time, but I feel like there's actually a richness to women's football because women have had to work so hard or they really appreciate what it is and how important it is to to build some of those foundations and it means that they look out for each other or they think do think outside the box and you know come up with really interesting and creative solutions so yeah I, I guess if I could just add to that and say it's easy to focus on the challenges but there have been some amazing triumphs I mean the Matildas have only been around for just over 40 years and to go from literally paying their own way to play for their country to achieving pay parity in the space of 40 years. The deal is being hailed as unique in world sport. Under the new CBA, the Socceroos and Matildas will split all revenue 50-50, rising from 24% to 27% over the four years of the deal. It's still 40 years too long, but it's, um, you know, you're still ahead of the US and they're actually the world champions. So that's hats off to, hats off to the, everything they've achieved in that time. Fiona, we didn't touch on your career, didn't reach any great heights, respectfully, a bit like mine, but uh, <laughs> you're still very, very passionate about the game. Uh, can you just tell us about your story? Mine was actually very similar uh, to Tal's, actually, is my brother played. I never saw any girls playing and there was no girls team for me to join. And I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't. it didn't occur to me that I could join the boys team. Um, so I went and played a lot of netball. It was probably in part because my brother was a little bit older and the kid, the boys were quite a bit bigger than me, obviously, so I wouldn't have been able to keep up. But I've, I've played a lot of netball and I've only come to play football as an adult. And that's something that makes me quite sad and sometimes a little bit angry because I really did miss out on that opportunity. So in some ways, part of what I do is actually making sure that there's no girls like me. It's I want them to know that there's an opportunity to play football if they want it and that for that opportunity to be there. Right. So the women's game has come a long way to today, uh, 2015, obviously being a landmark moment. Now, John, in your chapter, which you can read on Optus Sports Digital Channels, which uh, will uh, will be uh, released in uh, alongside this podcast. Now, you've drawn the distinction between women working within the system and and seeking change versus women who've worked outside the system as disruptors. Can you just talk to that for a moment? Yeah, I think I'd really like to get Tal and, and Kate to discuss that too. I mean, there just seems to be this real leap forward when you're challenging from the outside rather than trying to influence things from the inside. You know, so I'm looking at this from a, you know, a million miles away, but I'd love to know from you guys, what do you see is the better option? Is it to really hold your ground the way the Matildas did in 2015? Or do you actually just really try to get this incremental growth within an established system? We need both, I think, JD. I mean, the Matildas weren't really on the outside. They had contracts. They were on the inside. They might not have been paid in the way. In fact, you can confirm exactly what 
requirements or contractual components were, were part of their deal, but they were Matildas. So they had a platform. And as we know, with athlete activism these days, that platform can be used for all sorts of ends. But I don't think we should discount the changes that occur within the system. And unfortunately, we haven't gone far enough with, and Katie mentioned, women in leadership and how hard it is for for female leaders. And Katie is one of those, a co-CEO amongst um, very few organisations that have women at the top. We need both. Um, It's very hard to be very much on the outside and to create the sorts of changes that we're talking about. What really resonated with the strike was the collective component, I think. When we look at some of the big events, um, it's really hard for an individual up against the structural power dimensions of a system that she's operating against to, you know, put it all aside to say, okay, I don't care that I'm going to be pictured as a pariah. I don't care that I'm going to lose any opportunity for employment moving forward, but I'm going to call this system out. The system hasn't been ready for that. We need both. We need change from within, but we also need people prepared to stand up. I think my point is, and I'm sorry, it's taken me a while to get there, that it's really important to say it's not just about women standing up and women somehow having enough confidence to stand up, that it can't always be on the women to change the system, but we all need to change the system. And until we do that, we're not going to um, provide anybody with the sorts of opportunities or enablements that will make them, I guess, best succeed. Katie, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think what the challenging thing is that you know, the introduction of quotas and mandating females on boards. And I can see the merit behind that as well, but it's how much weight or voice do they really have? I think it's very challenging, as you said, Tal, to be an individual that's really trying to to push from within the system to change it. You need the support of your peers around you. You need other women to help to help influence and it shouldn't just be incumbent on women I completely agree with that you need strong supporters that are going to amplify your voice and actually help along your pathway and that's when you need people that actually want to change things that's the hard thing if you're if you're in a structure that doesn't want to change or doesn't want to hear a different position and it's the diversity it's the inclusion that that brings upon an organization to have diverse opinions to open up the conversation to not just keep doing the same thing the same way so I do agree with Tao that it does take both to be able to, to make that change happen. Fiona? Yeah, I, I would echo everything that they've both said. I'd just say I just want to see normalising participation at every level, whether it's at an amateur level or a professional level at a, or at an administrative level. I'm, I find it quite exhausting. Uh, I know particularly as a female football writer and I've been obviously around for a little bit longer than many of the others, but the novelty... Um, it really needs to go away. Uh, I think it's a sign that there's a problem when they think it's actually, you know, there's a novelty that there's a female football writer or that there's a female footballer. I think we really, really need to get to a point where it, they're treated as professionals, no matter what level of the game you're participating in. And, and it's really normalised and, and not a big deal. Yeah, we, and we certainly don't have that. That dynamic exists in very few industries that I can think of. Um, and that's, in my mind, why there's this parallel between yeah, the trajectory of women in football and the way fi- women more generally are able to influence institutions. You know, one of the things, and I'm probably, this is something of a different point that I wanted to just share with everyone was these cultural barriers that exist for women. It plays out and manifests in the actual composition of the Matildas team. You know, one of the stats um, that I, I refer to in the the Optus article is that something like yeah, 25% of Socceroos have been born overseas, whereas only since 1978, 
whereas only 10% of Matildas have been born overseas. So in my mind, you know, what's the explanation of that? The only thing I can surmise is it's a cultural barrier, is that people from more conservative countries where female participation in sport isn't encouraged are less likely to become footballers and then less likely to become successful at that craft. Whereas for boys, you've got a very different opportunity. The boys are thrown in, they play, and as a consequence, they become uh, adept at what they're doing. So the, the way culturally we approach the empowerment of women reflects in the national teams that we're putting out on the pitch. You know, we're not unlocking all the potential we can, but equally it again shows this symbiosis or parallel, symbiosis isn't the right word, but this sort of parallel between our cultural approach to women empowerment and the way football plays out on the, on the pitch or in our teams. I really appreciate that reflection, JD. Sometimes I get a bit annoyed and, and Fiona, I keep throwing to you because it's the media narrative that I'm really interested in, but um, David, you can jump in here too, but in the media, I often hear when we're at our most sentimental, we talk about football being a game for everybody, right? Regardless of who you are, where you come from, if you're female or otherwise. But then let's have a look at, and you just mentioned it, who's actually in our Matildas team, who actually makes up the composition of, of who's participating depending on locality and how much um, opportunity or dollars is put into that particular setting. We've really got to take a good hard look at ourselves. And that's part of what I understand you're doing with, with your authorship, uh, JD, which I think is absolutely fantastic. As you would all know, it's almost International Women's Day. And really the narrative that we're talking about at the moment in Victoria, but more broadly, is to look not just at gender, but to consider intersectionality and to consider how gender intersects and compounds with all sorts of other forms of disadvantage. And we can't just assume that the experience of, let's say me, and I, I'm a woman, but I'm a very privileged woman. I had a great education, a great home life. I, I have different barriers that I face than somebody who um, has come from a multicultural community or um, has experienced significant socioeconomic disadvantage. So I absolutely think that we need to posit this debate sometimes more broadly and think about those other intersecting forms of disadvantage. Fiona? I'd probably just add to that is I touched on it briefly in my book and it's not something I've been able to find exact stats on, but I know, for example, the PFA put out a W League report in, I think it was 2017 and 2018, where of the players who were surveyed, they're 51% they were, said they were probably going to leave the game early because of financial pressures. And I do wonder if that plays out, especially at a Matilda's level, is you can only participate in women's football if you come from a stable middle-class background uh, because you can actually afford to stay at home and your parents might support you or you have a partner who might be able to support you. So I do... I don't know how many players we've lost from the game due to financial pressures, but my hope is that we won't lose so many in the future and that there will be doors opened for players, as Tal saying, who maybe are from different socioeconomic um, backgrounds that who otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity to play. Yeah, and that speaks to the different speeds at which the women's rights movement has moved for a century, is that there'll be certain cohorts who have had access to a lot of the benefits of society, be it education, be it wealth, who can actually then advocate in different areas around rights. But then equally, you have people who might come from really socially conservative areas who aren't as, I suppose, passionate about specific areas. And that's certainly been the story, I think, from my research of feminism in Australia that's always moved in fits and starts. Um, and I think football needs to be really careful not creating that two-speed economy where we're dialling out certain players from being able to access representative opportunities and just structuring the game in such a way that only a certain group of people have that chance. And now, 
I can announce the host country of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023, which will be Australia. The 2023 FIFA World Cup, co-hosted by Australia and New Zealand. Australia's got no idea what's coming. This is a massive event that is coming to our country, 32 nations for the first time competing. When we discuss all of these themes and contemplate all of these themes and the opportunity that this event presents, what can happen, what should happen, what do we need to do over the next two and a bit years to prepare for this event? It's a massive question. <laughs> it's, it's hard. We've got a bit of time. <laughs> it, it's hard to, to really know where to start. I mean, which parts do you, do you want to fix? Do you want to leave, leave, leave a legacy for? Sorry. Um, the one that kind of smacks me in the face is around the infrastructure and, and what's available at the moment, I think, um, and then the access to that as well for, for participants, for female participants to to open that up, I still think it's it's quite challenging that um, in terms of the facilities that we have available to, to current players and the, the grounds and the clubs and the, at the community level, um, we really need to, to build that and be able to um, make it female-friendly and accessible as well. So that's the first one that, that really kind of hits me in the face when I look at what the legacy would be, World Cup. The legacy. It's such an interesting word and everyone uses it. And what I would really like to see is that we make the most of what a legacy could actually be. I mean, this isn't about a bunch of women running around for a month at some point in 2023. This is an opportunity to do all the stuff we've been talking a really big game about, but haven't really necessarily been acting on in the way that I would like to see. In my mind, let's go back to first principles we still live too much in anecdote. We actually don't know who we are. We don't really know enough about the barriers, whether they be structural or otherwise, that are holding us back. Let's actually take a good hard look at ourselves and then let's invest and come together collectively to figure out some of the strategies that could help take us forward. But more than that, because, you know, we've, we've written glossies before, how are we going to be accountable for those changes? So how can we bring people into the dialogue so that it's not just an event. And isn't it an amazing event? It's mind-blowing that we've got this event on our shores. I guess what I'm passionate about is I'd really like to see it leave the sort of effect that it has the potential to leave. John? Yeah. um, I'd, you know, follow on from Kate's. I think the infrastructure legacy is a big part of it. But I think in parallel with that is the human legacy. You know, what Mm. inspiration can we build for people within the game? I think we missed an opportunity with the coaching legacy. You know, we've gone for a foreign coach, which is fine. If he's the best person for the job, then that's the person that we need to hire. But I'd suggest that after 15 or 16 years of coach education in Australia, that we could have actually identified one person, even ideally a woman, who would be capable of coaching the national team on home soil. And if they succeeded, what a legacy that would have been to see an Australian woman head up that team and make a semi-final, potentially of a World Cup. It, um, you know, it creates <laughs> uh, just infinite opportunities for local coaches throughout the world and locally, um, that's an opportunity missed. So we talk about legacies, that's one we've missed out on. So we need to think through carefully, okay, what's the human legacy of this investment, this project going to be, not just the physical one? Fiona, what are your views perhaps through that historical lens? Yeah, I look, I think it goes back to things that we've touched on earlier. It's that we didn't see ourselves, we didn't get to see women playing when we were younger and that 
meant that we either didn't play or we played in spite of it. And I don't know. I think that has overshadowed women's football, just not being able to see other women like them to be inspired. So I think if you look through the history of women's football, the, the players who've played, played because they, even even without seeing them. So I'm sort of, that's a really long way of saying, you know, the next Sam Kerr, the next Katie Gill, the next Hal Karp could be a young player uh, watching or someone who isn't even playing yet. So probably that for me is, is what 2023 is. It's absolutely the infrastructure because I know in my own social games, you know, we still turn up and there aren't change rooms, but at least now they're a little bit ashamed that there aren't change rooms for women, um, which is a, a shift. But then, yeah, 2023, it's it's showing the next generation, but maybe also showing the women who dropped out and who might want to come back to the game. Or it's showing maybe people who'd never considered that women could play football, that, hey, these these are incredible athletes and there is a career to be had as a player. And what an important time for an event like this. I mean, the momentum around women's sport and Katie Gill, you'd know all about this. We were doing so well before COVID hit right? Everyone was watching and talking about women in sport. You know, obviously we had the Women's World Cup, but there was also the world record almost um, cricket T20 event in Australia. And we expect close to capacity here today for this momentous occasion. International Women's Day and the women take centre stage. We are itching on Australian soil to see some great women playing sport and then COVID hit and suddenly women playing sport wasn't the priority that maybe people perceived it to be before. Of course it is, but it it lost traction in the narrative. And there is just such a wonderful opportunity to win back that public narrative with the World Cup. And for even those that are not the usual suspects for football, who are not currently engaged in the game, to see these powerful, strong women for their talent, their skill and their strength, not their you know, not just how they aesthetically look, et cetera, but what they actually deliver on that field and how confident and wonderful they are. And and I just think there is just such a celebration. And what I want to see is that we really give that, um, I guess, all of the momentum that we can, given, I, th- I think, what we might have lost over the last little bit. What do you think, Katie? Yeah, I agree. I think that's a real meaningful contribution to the women's sport not being built on sand and people being, you know, really direct with the framework in the fact that this is a profession which we touched on before and building those pathways at the moment and um, if you're talking about the W League what does that look like in the build-up to the Women's World Cup and after the Women's World Cup I mean since we um, we collectively bargained for the players and organised the players and were able to improve their conditions but in terms of the competition that's stagnated since 2008 we've had no expansion the season length is the same the number of matches are the same so it's building out those structures that are going to be able to create a proper pathway for women through the system and then making sure that when a pandemic strikes like it has that it's not seen as a bottom line expense that just gets cut straight away and just doesn't give it the, hasn't, isn't given the thought to. So it's really valuing that as well and I don't think we place value on it at all. Commercially, you know, we don't, we don't, I don't know what women's properties are worth. It's a, it's a conversation that needs to happen. Yeah, that, that's spot on because the, the journey's not over. I think we're at a point now where we're sort of patting ourselves on the back a bit at times, or certainly have been, but the journey, um, as Kate just pointed out then, is certainly not over. We don't know basic fundamentals about the economy of women's sport. It gets bundled in as the steak knives at the back end of every commercial deal. Um, even now with the, the league splitting, say in the, in the A-League being carved out, 
what do we know about the, you know, the social and equitable value of the W League within that structure? No, we don't know anything. Um, the W League hasn't moved in 13 or 14 years. So whilst we can be pleased with some of the progress here, um, you don't want it to be a situation of, look, you've had a few wins, get back in your box and we'll come back to you later when we're ready. And that so often happens to, you know, women's groups aren't minorities, but to minority groups, those who aren't in power. We'll get to you when we're ready. And I think we've gone past that point and we need to continue that momentum. John touched on it briefly earlier about women's coaching opportunities. You touched on it before. You've all touched on it uh, in terms of administrative opportunities. I just want to get your views in terms of female coaches and where that sits, where it needs to, we all know where it needs to go, but what needs to happen for more female coaches to get opportunities and for a female coach to lead the Matildas? Well, there needs to be a, a dedicated framework put in place and a conscious decision to develop the female coaching pathway and what that looks like. And if, if you remove it a step back, what does it look like for coaching females? Because at the moment, every framework we operate in, especially in sport, is a male-dominated framework. Have we, you know, how do females want to be coached? Have we even talked to those players? Medically, what does that look like? All the research is dated on men's health research. And all the, the frameworks that we put in place is essentially, we've done this before for the men's game, so we'll just assume it works for the women's game. But it doesn't. So have we actually explored what it is like to be a female coach going through the system? And looked at the barriers and challenges and then how do we break that down and then build a pathway that's going to allow female coaches to come through and female coaches to succeed. I absolutely agree with you, Katie. And JD touches on this in his article as well, very well, I think. What you talked about is really getting to know ourselves better, um, to go beyond that anecdote and actually understand what is it that women want when they're coached, but also Let's try and overcome what we've always assumed that a coaching role entails. We've always, as you said, thought about it through a male narrative, a male paradigm. If COVID has taught us anything, it's that we can change and that traditional assumptions of the way that we work aren't always the way that we have to work. For example, you know, a year ago, people would have just fallen over themselves with the concept of flexible work. Yet when it comes to coaching, we still presume that it has to be done through a particular model. I did some coaching levels. I got up to my my B, Asian Licence B Confederation, whatever it is, a <laughs> bunch of years ago. And I know it's changed a lot since then. But when I was there, I was sitting there. You mentioned Di Aligic, Fiona. Di and I were the only two women amongst a sea of people doing our levels together um, in respect of material with, that was largely male-focused. And I know that there have been steps taken to try and change that and to encourage more women in the door what I think we need to do is stop assuming it's not about women being confident enough to be coaches, but actually take a good hard look, as Katie said, about what it is about coaching, um, what it is that we need with coaching. Let's actually have that hard evidence um, to our hands and let's ask women about about their perspectives on this. I just wanted to throw in, I coached my local team, uh, women's team for three months, Dandenong City before oh, I It's sacked, always so about you, isn't it, David? I'm clearly it's not the person to, uh, to ask about this, but uh, <laughs> Fiona, over to you. Yeah, we, we actually have a chapter on coaches in the book and it's, yeah, it's such a tricky issue. Um, I think Tal and Katie have covered it really well. It's about creating those pathways 
Um, it it doesn't happen magically, and it's not an area that's been open, probably even less open to women than uh, than even being a player. So it's definitely an area that's lagging, and that there's a real potential. Um, I would love to see. I know I've seen a few, um, like in a, from a media perspective, um, there's some mentorships for women who want to get into sports commentating, which has been really exciting because. There's not a, there are not enough women um, in that space, and I'd love to see more of that happening in the coaching space as well. Is really really have someone who is going to look out for you because I know. Um, so one of the one of the stories we have in the book is um, Mel Andrietta, who's obviously uh, you know Matilda's assistant coach. I think is her most recent title, and Ray Dower, who fortunately are both Queenslanders and good friends and have known each other for many many years. But they were both coaching. W League teams and there was a double header at the Central Coast Stadium. I can't remember the name of the stadium. It's the one with the sauce bottles. <laughs> blue, sauce bottles. blue tongue. That's Gosford. it, blue tongue. Um, Central but, Coast Stadium, I think it is now. Many is that what it is? <laughs> I like blue tongue much better. It's always the sauce bottles were always a highlight. But um, there was a double header and there were not enough change rooms. So by default, they put some marquees up in the car park and then they put both W League teams in those marquees. And the tents were so close together that the, you could actually hear the coaches giving um, the teams the, the pointers <laughs> for the game. And I think it speaks a lot about women's football. It's about when there's not enough facilities, the women get relegated to the tents in the car park. But then even then, there's not a lot of thought that goes into it. It's about, oh, you know, they'll just make do. And fortunately, you know, Mel and, and Ray knew and liked each other and, and rolled with it. But I think it's those small things that actually are quite big things and, in a coaching space and in a playing space and just in a, a structural space, we can um, we can definitely improve. Kate, I saw you smirking. Yeah, I think we um, we captured the images of those drop-in marquees at Oxford Stadium. Yeah, <laughs> we had the players showing us photos. But, yeah, it's, it's the small things, but they're very symbolic mm. and they mean a lot to the players. For them to be comfortable in their surrounds, and, and Tal touched on that earlier on, that – that's exactly what they want. They want to be treated as professionals. They want to be treated as footballers and what they interpret to be a footballer. Like We still have issues in, in the W League itself around travelling on match day, the accommodation the players um, stay in. I, I know it's tight commercially and, sorry, financially, um, but that doesn't mean that you should take away their dignity to be a professional player. We're on the home stretch now. I wanted to get some closing remarks from our esteemed panelists today. Who wants to go first? I don't want to wrap it up. I want to leave the final words. Well, then you're our, going first, To our John. actual international footballers. We're, <laughs> just, I... we're just the hacks who are... Um, can I go second up. then? As this, yeah. <laughs> Carl clearly has to go after John. But, um, <laughs> Sorry, Jamie. <laughs> as the series author, we'll get you to kick it I, off. I think, um, I think the first thing, the first point I wanted to make is there's been huge steps in other football codes since the Matildas took their stand. And I think that, again, speaks volumes as to how powerful that group of women were and how powerful that team is. There's no way in the world the AFLW would have started when it did had the Matildas not taken that stand, and that's changed so many things on the sporting landscape. So I think that's important to recognise that, you know, the AFL did not create women's sport, believe it or not. No? No, they didn't. It's been around for a while. But I think there's no credit, you know, broadly attributed to what those players did in Hyde Park that afternoon. Um, and I wanted to chuck out a quote here from the great Jermaine Greer, if I might. And this summed up for me a lot of the challenges for the Matildas for the past 40 years was, the female sex is able to live more independently than in previous times, but we pay a high price and carry a heavy load. 
And I think what that, what that spoke to me about was the Matildas journey in that, yes, it's great. They get to play in world cups and they're starting to professionalize and they're starting to have the same access to the platforms that the men have, but they've got to do so by carrying this incredibly huge load. They don't get a chance to focus purely on preparing for that world cup. You know, if you look at the 2015 team, the, the players that had to prepare for that 2015 world cup, you got that great opportunity, had to make decisions about quitting jobs, had to make decisions about working part-time, had to make decisions about deferring study. These are decisions that other people or men in particular haven't had to make in pursuing football. So whilst it's critical, we can, that progress continues to be made. It needs to be balanced and needs to be an equilibrium that's equivalent to what, you know, the, the paradigm is for men. Fiona Crawford. I'd probably just add to that and to say, um, you know, it's easy to concentrate on all the the really the difficulties with women's football because there are a lot and a lot of obstacles to overcome. But because, but I also think we really need to celebrate the obstacles that have been overcome and the incredible work some women have been doing behind the scenes, like your Katie Gills, like your Kate, sorry, Tal Carps. So. 2023 for me, looking forward, and or just women's football in general, looking forward is I think we've got to celebrate the wins, but also really um, grab those opportunities with both hands. So hopefully we won't have to be talking about things like strikes that happened in 2015. They'll just be kind of relegated to history. Listen to old podcasts. Kate Gill. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll carry on from what Fiona said. I think now we have a team in the Matildas that are authentic and they're relatable and you see that in, in the fans that, that turn up to watch them and also the way that they conduct themselves. Like to be able to have players in clubs like Chelsea, in clubs like Arsenal, that's what you only thought was possible in the men's game now but for our female players to be amplifying that and almost exceeding the levels that their male counterparts have um, traditionally held but the boldness, the respect, the influence that they've had amplifying their voice and the fact that they've done it as a group and collaboratively is just been phenomenal. And it's been really important to be a small part of that, but to be able to continue to, to drive that off the field as well. And last but not least, Tel Carp. <laughs> you just wanted me to challenge JD. So JD. Please. I can't say I loved everything about that quote that you shared, but I did like the comment or the component of it that talked about women bearing a heavier load. And we heard from Tamika much earlier that she really feels like she has a role to play in positively influencing what comes after her. And I think that reflects to the fact that it's not, there are so many of us now who are not just playing or we don't just have a role. We, we feel like there is a role for us to play more broadly to create broader change. And so I guess that's my call out. And that is, you know, um, we're all a product of a system that has perhaps put women in a particular place on and off the football field, but we all have a role to play, not just the powers that be in changing that, in calling out biases um, and inequities, in, you know, calling out discrimination and harassment when we see it, in, in trying to challenge the structures and the systems that Katie spoke to. So I guess that's my challenge. What role are each and every one of us going to take on? So by the time it's 2023 and those young kids are looking up and watching those amazing footballers play, we can actually see that we haven't just talked about it, but we've done a heap to get ourselves there and to create the legacy that we want to see. Did you want to write a reply, John? (laughs) I would never, ever, ever think to outwit the great Tal Carp. She's always <laughs> one step ahead of me. But what I'll say, I just had a, a quick thought. 
in the context of her comments on the 2023 World Cup, I was lucky enough to beat the Australia versus Japan game in 2006, which was one of the games, or near one of the games we discussed in an earlier podcast and how incredible that was. That was surreal, like sitting there seeing Tim Cahill score those goals. It was an out-of-body experience. I had exactly the same sensation when I watched Australia versus Brazil at the 2019 Women's World Cup, sitting in that stand, seeing the way, the way that match played out. It was absolutely surreal. And to me, that is the power of football, is that it's transcendent. It's about the narrative that underpins what you're seeing on the pitch. It's not about how hard you hit a ball or all that type of stuff. It is about the emotion that builds within you when you're watching that match of football. And that game in 2019, um, I, th- I think, was the key to the deal that we did around gender equality. Because I sat there with Mark Milligan, um, and he was there for that game. And there's no way anybody in that stadium couldn't have thought that this was the best thing that football can offer. And hopefully we have how many, 32 of those games in a couple of years' time. I was watching on the couch watching Tal Karp's uh, cutting-edge analysis on Optus Sport. Oh, I was horrible. But <laughs> <laughs> can I just reflect from that couch experience, one of the things that was amazing at that time, and it comes back to something that, that Fiona spoke to, until I sat there on the couch watching that 2019 World Cup, I kind of felt like I was a bit weird and a bit different for loving football in the way that I had my whole life. I've kind of felt like I was going against the grain, but suddenly there were all of these amazing women who had awesome stories of, you know, dressing up as boys to play because they weren't allowed to play and who really challenged the system in all sorts of ways. And I actually felt really normal and that was lovely. So um, there is absolutely something to be said by by promoting the game and making it visible in a way that isn't as JD says just a b-product of how we do men's football but it is telling a different story and a really proud story um, as Fiona has done in all of her materials. Wonderful. I think we'll leave it there. We've had a fantastic uh, podcast episode. We will touch more on the FIFA Women's World Cup in our upcoming episode so look out for that on the Optus Sport platforms. Thanks for joining us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.